Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have Dr. Eric Cobb. He is the founder of Z Health, and this guy is epic. I'm just going to jump right into it. Get your notepads ready. Here we go. introduction to that you guys released today and we've just been going hard in the paint all day (laughs) i'm I'm glad you got it i hope that you're finding it useful oh yeah absolutely it's super fun and explains a lot of stuff i'm really excited about it Um, i'm really excited to have you on we got a lot to talk about um so before we get into your introduction uh there was a concept that i really wanted to ask you about so a friend of mine um, on Instagram, his uh, name is DJ Murakami, and somebody asked him a question like, "Why do you open your mouth like when you're lifting maximal loads, or why are you closing your mouth?" And so, um, that's the, one of the things that I really wanted to unpack with you, uh, kind of right away, is uh, different positions as far as your jaw and your mouth are concerned, as far as lifting uh, maximal loads. Okay. Yeah. Well- <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. just dive right in. <laughs> Diving right in, yes, sir. Um, so there are obviously there's some when you look at jaw position, tongue position, both are going to be kind of critical with regards to overall what what we generally call reflexive stability. Yeah. And whenever we look at uh, either bilateral lifting, doing something unilateral, explosive sports movements. You have to have a certain amount of reflexive stability. Most of that work is being taken care of at the brainstem level. Um, so I'm not sure how familiar you know you are or listeners are with the brainstem. So can I do a brief anatomy lesson? Yes, absolutely, please. Okay. Uh, so whenever we look at the brainstem, it's divided up into three primary areas. On top, you have what's called the midbrain, or the the medical word you will hear is mesencephalon. Underneath that is the pons, and underneath that is the medulla. So we've got midbrain, pons, medulla. Um, and this area of the brain is incredibly important in relationship to stabilization. So part of what you see when you're talking about jaw position, tongue position, is sometimes you'll see athletes that do better lifting with their mouth open. Some you will see doing better with a tightly clenched jaw. There's been some studies looking at you know, mouth guards and mouthpieces and clenching. So probably the reason that we see variances in that Uh, really comes down to the anatomy. So when you dig into these areas of the brainstem, they are, uh, again, not sure how familiar people are with all our kind of joint control mechanisms, but all of our joints operate on what are called muscle synergies, which is basically the tone and reaction or agonist antagonist tone um, around any joint, right? So I tell people you have flexor tone, you have extensor tone. Whether you talk about abduction, adduction, they're all really variations on flexors and extensors. 
Right. So the brainstem is broken down this way. Midbrain facilitates flexor activity. Pons facilitates extensor activity. And then the medulla flex, uh, basically inhibits extensor. So we say it's a flexor promoter. So we have two for flexion, one for extension. And then you add in the cerebellum. The cerebellum is also going to cooperate with the pons for extension. So we have two and two. Right. So depending on prior injuries, depending on what people have experienced in the past, they may find that a certain jaw position will impact either their flexor or extensor tone more. Mm. So when you look at uh, someone heavy squatting, heavy pull, and we know, let's say they're coming from the floor uh, up on a heavy pull, they need a ton of extensor tone. Generally speaking, right? That's what we would assume. Right. Yes. So then we would be looking at jaw positions or structures that would influence pontine activity. All right, because the pons is going to facilitate extension. Uh, so then you dig into the pons anatomy and you figure out that living in there is the trigeminal nerve and the tri or trigeminal and facial nerve. Um, trigeminal nerve is five, facial nerve is seven. The trigeminal nerve is in charge of a lot of what we do with our jaw. So it innervates what are called your muscles of mastication. So sometimes clenching activates cranial nerve five, cranial nerve five increases activity in the pons. The pons by then, it's by nature of what it does, increases extensor activity, and maybe you get a heavier pull from that. Yeah. Uh, conversely, um, let's say you see someone that responds better. They're able to lift heavier with an open mouth position. Yeah. Um, with the jaw relaxed, sometimes what we will see is increased medullary responses. All right. Uh, so that would be kind of you would think that would be weird. Like, why would I need to increase flexor tone in order to, you know, be able to pull a heavy deadlift? However, if you've had injuries and as a result of that, the pons is maybe overactive, you may need increased flexor tone to counter all that. Uh, so, you know, one of the kind of hallmarks of how I teach neurology is there's probably some kind of unconscious anatomy responsible for what you're seeing in an athlete. And the more we understand how the anatomy functions, it helps us hone in on what works better for them, what we may need to figure out and address uh, to help solve problems for them, particularly in the future. So hopefully that's a little bit of a no, that uh, was, insight. Yeah, that was perfect. And that's, <laughs> so like I said, this is just a kind of a continuation of my day where I have to push pause and then sit with it for a second and be like, okay, <laughs> moving forward. Yeah. So that's really good. And you know, this, uh, this podcast has been really interesting because, uh, you know, I heard you on uh, Dr. Perry Nicholson's podcast, and he's, uh, you know, one of my favorite teachers ever. And um, I haven't had the pleasure of going to one of your courses yet, but uh, um, one of my uh, teachers and mentors was um, her facility was right next to your guys' facility down at Glendale. And so... Yeah. And so that's, so that's where I started to get, well, what's Z health and everybody's talking about Z health. So then, you know, this was a couple of years ago. So then I started Googling it. I'm like, Oh my God, this is important stuff. And so that's where I started getting into um, a lot of the eye dysfunctions and vestibular ocular stuff and, and, you know, understanding um, that people with concussions have those, eye dysfunctions if they've had concussions before which then can affect literally everything that they have going on right and so um uh, you know so when i got into my athletic career i started out 
in MMA, which is just action packed full of concussions because, you know, if you get hit in the head, you're concussed. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, there's obviously like levels to that. Right. So, um, you know, once I started to understand that stuff and then understanding how important eyes are to movement, then it all just kind of started unfolding before me. And another uh, part of my background is I'm a massage therapist also. And so, you know, the, one of the first modules that you guys were talking about is um, just threat. And so years ago, once I started to learn all this stuff, instead of saying, why is this muscle tight? I started saying, why is this under threat? So what, yeah. So what is, and then just basing it off of threat and safety. How do I make this person feel safer? You know, because once they, and then like dig, grading performance a little bit, you know, so, um, what does performance mean to you? It's like, does it mean getting a hundred kilo snatch or does it mean walking up and down the stairs or getting off the ground? Like, so, you know, performance is graded based off of the person, right? So one of the things that we, you know, I tell people all the time in our courses, I go, listen, the, the work that you're doing with an individual has to be relevant to them. Right. right. And that, if you're a sports coach, you're a physician, you're a therapist, it doesn't matter. I say our number one job is behavior change. Right. Right. And so people are much more likely to stick to an exercise program or stick to a training program or a therapy program if it's oriented toward goals that matter to them. Right. Uh, This whole idea of threat kind of being this gate really between pain and performance, uh, I think is so critical for people to understand. Yeah. Um, You know, I think people that have been in the field for a long time, we all, eventually figure this out. We go, oh, this person at some level is feeling threatened. Maybe they're having a horrible you know, year at work. Maybe they're going through a divorce, but something's occurred. Um, years ago, we really didn't have the neurology to explain all that. But right. thankfully, there's been some amazing researchers over the last really 50 years, 60 years. And with the advent of new technology, it's becoming the, the, pain, the pain neuroscience picture is becoming a little bit more clear. And we know that when the organism feels threatened, some kind of protective response kicks in. And maybe that's muscle tension. Maybe that's loss of mobility. Maybe that's pain. In an athlete, maybe we see a decrease in their speed or power. Uh, but really, most of it's happening at the, you know, what we would call uh, subcortical level. The athlete still wants to perform, right? Logically, they're like, I should be able to do this. Yeah. Uh, but their brain sometimes is smarter than them. <laughs> and it's yeah. saying, I'm trying to protect you from yourself. Yeah. So I call that the use. I call that the use to kids. I used to be able to do this. (laughs) And so, you know, there's a, um, you know, just, yeah. See, so this is like the stuff that's like super important. So, you know, MMA and then um, moving on to, you know, high intensity fitness and jujitsu and all that kind of thing. We're like, society has this narrative right now of like pushing through the pain. And your pain is like, once you start to understand what that is, that's you being like, Hey, we're reaching the capacity of what we should be able to do or what we should be doing. And so I'm shutting you down. Right. So like, and so pain, like Dr. Perry says, pain is a request for change. What are we doing? What do we need to stop doing? You know? So then you start to think about, um, you know, the, just 
being an independent business owner, like that's an insane amount of stress all the time, <laughs> especially like with everybody right now in this current situation. Right. So like what, so what are you doing? So should you be, you know, doing interval sprints or should you just be <laughs> calming yourself down right. and just doing like movement patterns and just, you know, figuring it out. So, you know, I've moved from traditional lifting onto more exploratory stuff and I'm home all day and I have a lot of my gym equipment at home. So I'm just doing stuff here and there, you know, trying to keep this base level because then every once in a while I think about my current financial situation and I'm just like, cool, I'm just going to go <laughs> curl up in my closet. <laughs> it's time for some breathing drills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's um, the whole topic of pain and protection I, is one I'm, I've been super fascinated with for most of my life. I'm a martial artist as well um, and moved out of martial arts into combatives. I worked with the military. I spent a ton of time. Uh, I actually worked overseas and worked with a lot of guys coming back from injuries, explosions. And, you know, the thing I was trying to get across to, to people when I talk about pain is we have to be careful with our explanations to people, right? Um, discomfort, pain are a good, normal thing. Yeah. Right? They, they belong there for a reason. The idea of being pain-free forever makes no sense uh, because, you know, and there are, there's a couple of rare genetic disorders where people are non-sensitive. They don't feel pain, and most of them die very, very young. Uh, because they have an infection or they have a fracture or they have an uh, organ injury and they don't feel it. So it is there to protect us. Um, obviously on the, I would say on the, the health side right now, everyone, as you said, is super stressed out, whether they recognize it or not. So this is a great time. I've been telling our community, Hey, reevaluate what you're doing in your own training. This is also a good time to explore things that you have been thinking about for, Oh, for the last five years, I knew I needed to work on my eyes, but I haven't had the time. Yeah. Uh, these are great opportunities to explore things that are maybe new to you because one of the things about altering a pain signature in the brain, uh, altering our hormonal responses is altering the input systems. Right. So doing something novel, doing something different, as long as you don't let the performance side of that stress you out, like, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at it. And right. you can just do it for the experience. It can be super calming. And I think it's a really good time for people to explore stuff like that. Um, um, conversely, you know, we also do work with a lot of athletes and first responders. And I, I tell people that we, our, our job, generally speaking, as coaches is to make people more resilient to whatever task they have chosen to take on. Right. right? So if you're a high-end business, business executive, I need to make you more stress uh, resilient for having meetings, reading eight to 10 hours a day, 12 hours of screen time, and three hours of exercise a week, right? That's what I need to improve your resilience around. If you're a Navy SEAL, then I need to improve your resilience around just ridiculous amounts of physical stress, pain, learn how to work through that. Not saying that that's a great choice, but hey, you know, I, like I said, I'm a fighter, you work with MMA guys all the time, and yeah. I say, you're an adult, you get to choose what you wanna do. I can tell you the risk, it's informed consent. And then I just, uh, I think it's our ethical responsibility to help people either prevent things that could happen to them or help solve things once they do happen. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a multifaceted conversation. You can take it a lot of different directions. Right. And so it's a, 
asking people what their overarching goals are. So, you know, and so, yeah. And so (laughs) I've been uh, explaining to people that the, the models that we have for all these different sports and all these different activities are the 0.1% of this population. And so if you're looking at a high level baseball player and you're just starting to play at 20 or 25, the likelihood that you're going to get there is very, very, very low. And so you don't need to throw yourself into a shoulder injury, you know, because we're not, we're made to like throw something at something, kill it and eat it. We're not made to throw something a thousand times a day, you know? (laughs) And so, um, and it's just, and I fell into this trap too. You know, I started, uh, I started my mixed martial arts when I was 27 and then, you know, got into competition and, and was just getting after it and was promised by millions of people that, well, not millions, but you know, uh, promised by enough people that I could perform at a high level. So I started training at a high level and then the best that I could reach was above average. And so you need to understand and give people these clear messages on what they're doing without just kind of dashing their hopes and dreams. It's a really, it's, we have a really interesting profession, <laughs> you know what I mean? Trying to find that balance. Yeah. It, yeah. It's a strange job and it is a, uh, there's some cool aspects to it. And something I point out to a lot of our clients is I love the fact that they're enthusiastic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think the reason that people are enthusiastic is, you know, we, I don't know if you've ever had this, this experience. This is the way I explain this to a lot of clients. Let's say I've got a golfer that's coming in. I, I film everybody, right? So I just want to watch you swing a club. So I'm going to have you swing a driver, have you swing a iron and I film them. And yeah. I cannot tell you how many times in my career I filmed somebody going, okay, let's take a look at it. And literally they watch themselves and they go, that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, same clothes, same person, right? Yeah. But sometimes our mental image of what we do is solely shaped by what we see on TV, right? You got a golfer, he probably watches everybody, he watches tournaments, he watches the best guys in the world. And so we tend to then visualize that our movement looks just like those folks without recognizing that they have uh, genetic potential, they've had training, they've had millions of repetitions with high levels, high levels of coaching. Um, they're obsessive about it. And so, yeah, trying to compare yourself to that person usually leads to people trying training programs that they are not yet suited for. Right. Um, one of our advanced courses is a speed course. And in that course, we do a lot of work with the visual system, but we also do a lot of field drills and how to teach sprinting. And even though, uh, 95% of our students are professionals, they're either coaches or therapists or doctors. I literally give the same warning every time. I'm like, if you haven't been sprinting for the last six months, when we're on the field, I want you to do everything at 30%. Right. Because you may be working out in the gym, you may be strong, but you're not sprinting strong, right? These, right. So, so sports, particularly things that are very plyometric in nature or very explosive in nature, tissues require a lot of time to adapt to that. And this mm-hmm. is where we see a ton of injuries, I think, in the general fitness population. Uh, we people want a fast ramp and it really the the long term a slow gradual ramp up to high levels is the is the smart path to take for most people right and so something you guys touched on um today is that 
whatever fitness that you're doing at this period of time in your life might not benefit you at this period of time in your life. So it should be a constantly evolving process. And, you know, the adaptation to that process is going to be cyclical. So, you know, for a long time when I was a really heavy into grappling, I was, I could deadlift maybe 200 pounds and then I got up to 500 pounds. And then now I can't deadlift that heavy because I'm moving on to other things. Because if I do deadlift that heavy, then I can't function for like four or five days. And then, so then that's your body being like, Hey, this isn't what we need Right. right now. So it's one of those things where we're constantly as coaches telling our clients to listen to their body. What's your body saying? And if it's too much of a threat, then stop doing that thing. And so I tell that to a lot of my clients all the time and they get all super frustrated. I'm like, well, you obviously can't do anything right now because your stress levels are so elevated that any kind of proprioceptive input is causing you more stress, which is putting you over the top and making you super frustrated. So we're just going to not work out today and we're going to hang out. We're going to breathe and we're going to roll around on the ground maybe. And then you're going to go home, you know? Yeah. It requires a lot of explanation and a lot of coaching for people to grasp that because yeah. I, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I think that most of our particularly fitness world um, has been, you know, it's like every other business it's marketing driven. Right. Um, and particularly in the Western world, everything is marketed in four week blocks, eight week blocks, fix this in six minutes, fix that in four minutes or whatever. Uh, and I think it gives people a very warped perspective on what gradual progression year after year really looks like and what it really means. Right. Uh, so that's what I was saying. You know, behavior change is, is the big task. And a lot of behavior change comes from education, comes from experience. Um, we talk a lot about uh, what we call the threat bucket. I don't know if yeah. you've seen, seen that discussion before. But, you know, what I'm always trying to share with clients is, look, you have a stress bucket or a threat bucket, and if you go through the day, it gets full, right. uh, depending on your levels of resilience. Most of the time, because humans are tough, you know, the threat wavers, it goes up and down. But for the most part, we don't have a ton of severe responses to it. But whenever we connect enough threat, the bucket overflows, and then we're going to get some kind of protective out- output from that. The most common protective output is pain, but that can also be fatigue. It can be poor sleep. It can be endocrine changes. Um, so when I draw that out for them, I then go through a list of here are some things we know can that go into the, the threat bucket, right? So how's your sleep? That's eh, not been so good. Well, man, weird. You're sleeping back pain. Maybe they're correlated. Yeah. Uh, but we just basically go through the systems, your visual system. You spend uh, right now, particularly during the quarantine period we're undergoing, they're saying statistically we're seeing people – 80 to 90% more on screens than they have been. And we were already on them a lot. Yeah. So in the U S average, right over 13 hours a day. Yep. Um, and I tell people vision is habitual at some, at some level. And so you may be getting great at looking at your phone, but that may be coming at a lot of cost for other portions of the visual system. So your threat levels can go up. Yeah. Um, vestibular system, you know, that can get really, really, and disturbed in a lot of um, low-grade waves that are not as noticeable as something like vertigo. Um, and then on top of that, all your joints, muscle tendons, proprioceptive system, your nutrition, exercise stress, like yeah. all these different things go into that bucket. So as coaches, we're, we're 
you know, juggling 12 or 13 things at once and trying to convince clients that it's okay to not make massive progress today, right? Every day doesn't have to be a PR. Sometimes yeah. the, you're setting the stage for getting better by doing a little bit less and focusing more on how you feel. Right. And it's, uh, you know, it's all, if we just listen to our bodies, like we've been saying, then it's gives us all the information we need because one of the um, few symptoms that you left out of there is like irritability mm-hmm. like, or uncoordination. Like you're bumping into everything and you're, right. everything sucks and you're just like <laughs> yelling at the sheets on your bed. Why won't you just straighten out? You know what I mean? It's just time to take a day. Just stop it. Like, you know, but there's uh so one thing that I've kind of been, um, unpacking as far as this current situation goes is that there's there's a lot of kind of subconscious anxiety within especially America that we're seeing right and so a lot my theory is is that a lot of this anxiety revolves around the acquisition of money and so now our anxiety just shoots through the roof because we can no longer acquire money and it's just crazy. So then you're just stay in your house. So should I drive down to Phoenix? No, stay at home. Okay. So what do I do then? Like try doing nothing for a minute. You know what I mean? Sit with yourself. Like let's figure out this anxiety thing. And this is like a, I kept saying, this is a wonderful opportunity to reinvent your practice or, you know, whatever people are doing. So you know, that's a thought that I had immediately when this first started. Like, if you could start your business over again, what would you do differently? Because this is your opportunity to do so. Yeah. You know, and it's just really interesting. And humans are so fascinating. <laughs> and, I, and, and I say to everybody, we're so weird. And it's amazing that we made it this far, considering. You know, it is. <laughs> you know I've, uh, we've talked a lot about this on some of our podcasts and our webinars with our community. So, one of the things I always talk about right now with our current situation is I always say education is medicine, right? Knowledge is medicine at some level. And I think it helps people to understand how the human brain basically functions. Right. One of the things that's really been looked at deeply over the last 25 to 30 years now, and we feel pretty comfortable with it, uh, is that our brains are constantly running simulations, right? Uh, If you think about us more on a mammalian context, if I was out in the woods walking through, any new sound or movement is going to attract my attention, right? right? And the reason I'm doing that is I'm going to look over and I'm going to try to decide, is this stimulus dangerous or not, right? Right. Threat or no threat. And this is all going to happen through uh, a lot of processing in part of the brain called the amygdala and the hippocampus, which is a memory region. So I'm walking, I see movement, I look up and I see brown and some antlers and I go, oh, okay, it's a deer, right? I've seen a deer before. I've never been attacked by a deer. So I might move a little quietly and carefully, but it's beautiful, etc. Now, if I only catch a glimpse of brown fur and I live in an area where there are mountain lions, now, because I can't predict, I don't have enough information to predict, now all of a sudden my survival system is going to be ramped up tremendously. Yep. So when you look at our current environment, people are experiencing tremendous fear because the coronavirus feels unpredictable. Yeah. We're getting tons of information about what not to do and very little information about what to do. Correct. Um, And viruses and bacteria particularly are very scary for people because they feel uncontrollable Yep. and they feel very unpredictable. Am I going to get sick? Am I not going to get sick? So that's anxiety causing. 
Yep. And now we have all the economic uh, shutdown that people are experiencing. And let's say you've been in practice one way for 15 years. Your brain has built a, a belief system around the quality of your income, the predictability of how your day is going to go. And with all of that thrown uh, out the window, all of a sudden, all of our standard prediction, prediction models that, have, that feel like they keep us safe, now all of a sudden don't feel safe anymore. Uh, and this is where having that built-in resilience and things to do, you feel more in control, are so hypercritical. Um, I am very grateful. I've had a lot of amazing mentors over the years. And um, when all this started, one of the guys I've, I've been mentored by in the past was talking about business. And he said, he told his staff, he said, what we're going to do is, he said, we're going to imagine what we're going to, in the next three months, we're going to accomplish more online than we had planned for the next five years. All of a sudden, people went, ah, I'm in control of that. I have some things that I can do. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of a model that we've been doing in our business. And every time I feel anxious or stressed about the work, we just try to come up with another idea. You know, three years down the road, we were thinking about doing X. How can we do that this month? Right. Uh, and it's made, it's, it's been a very interesting process for everybody. Uh, as you said, I think it's a great time to reflect and go, how, how would I rebuild all this? Yep. But on the brain side of all of it, the thing I would really emphasize is as you're considering those things, make sure that as you're, you know, get it down to action items, get it down to things that you can actually implement so yep. that your brain feels that there's a little bit of predictability, a little bit more control because that lowers the overall anxiety that so many people are experiencing. Right. And so a big part of that anxiety is when we get back to go back to work. Right. Everybody shrugs their shoulders. I don't know. You're like, okay, so what does that mean? Because you know, so, <laughs> yeah, I'm a coach and a massage therapist, and both of those are not social distancing. So, Correct, yeah. yeah, so then it's, uh, yeah, it's just so weird. And then you start to think about the, the impact on just about everyone on earth, you know. So, you know, like you guys are hosting seminars all the time. And then all of a sudden you're not. And right. so then you're like, Ugh. okay, so it's that whole predictability thing where you could just, we used to be able to go to the store and buy toilet paper. You remember that? That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> or like Clorox wipes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like my biggest, my biggest gripe is those uh, rubber gloves. Like I legitimately ran out of rubber gloves and I use them to like pick up the accidents that my dogs have. And now I don't have them. And I'm like, come on, I need them. <laughs> you know, it's just such a bummer. But it's, uh, it's all these things that we just get used to. And we're so comfortable all the time. And then um, maybe you can unpack this a little bit too. But I believe that humans need some type of discomfort in order to be comfortable. And so that's why there's some clients that I have where I only see them like five weeks out of the year when they're like, Oh my God, I forgot. I need to sign up for this ultra marathon. I better start running five weeks before. And you're just like, okay, <laughs> but then they do. And then they're satisfied with their discomfort. And then the rest of their life, they, uh, for that particular year is way easier than running that ultra marathon, you know? So we just need these levels of stress to understand that, well, this uncertainty isn't that bad because I'm not running 50 miles unprepared. So, you know, it's just a really interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, there's a, obviously I think everyone's heard of eustress and distress 
And I think sometimes we maybe oversimplify those terms. Doing something exceptionally hard can be one of, it can be life-changing for people. Yeah. Um, and it, in the, in the short term, it may not be physically the best for them. Right. It may cause injury. They may, you know, they may really suffer. However, the emotional benefit from it that they're um, receiving may echo over into a, a huge amount of their life. So whenever you look at this on the neurologic side, um, this talk, we tell people you have what we call the, sh the shun sisters, right? You have proprioception, which is information coming from muscles, tendons, joints about movement. Um, you have what is called extraception. Extraception is my visual system, my sense of touch, my taste, smell. So we take in information that way. We also have what's called interception. Interception is your body's awareness of what's going on on the inside. And when you look at where these areas are uh, basically processed uh, within the brain, interception is probably one of the stronger emotional uh, signals that we receive. So when people go out and do really hard things, even though they're physically suffering, sometimes it is a huge burst are a huge uh, change in the amount of interception that they're feeling. And with that change in interception, it changes brain activity and sometimes provides a, a lot, like I said, of kind of side benefits on the emotional, uh, uh, emotional side of life, your maybe what we call inhibitory control. Uh, some people need to do really hard things so that as you said, when they're faced with less hard things, it feels easier to them. So uh, yeah, I've seen that in, in a lot of people and I think you know, there are, we don't know yet uh, on the genetic side, some people seem to need more interceptive information in order to have better brain activity. We're probably years away from knowing that stuff uh, definitively, but on a, on a scale, looking at humans, we have people that we call stimulus seekers. Mm -hmm. You have your MMA guys, you have military, you have people like jumping out of airplanes, basically everyone in the winter Olympics <laughs> going fast, jumping over. They're yeah. stimulus seekers, and right. they fall in love with that because of, at some level, providing logic level. And then you have the other side of the equation of people who really avoid stimulus because they perceive everything at a very, very intense level. Mm -hmm. So as um, coaches, we just have to be aware that there's a continuum of the amount of stimulus that people can handle. Right. Um, and finding out that correct dosage and balance is really kind of key for helping people stay centered and helping them perform well. Yeah, that's yeah. so fascinating. Um, so let's go back to the beginning of the podcast where we should have started. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's uh, um, introduce yourself and then uh, give people a quick and dirty rundown of uh, where you started and how you got to here because that's a really fascinating thing too because um you know immediately upon graduating massage school i understood that this was very remedial knowledge and none of this was going to help me help people and so then the further down the rabbit hole i go the more i'm like how do these people know this stuff you know so then you start to look at like pain scientists like David Butler mm -hmm. who are still studying and still learning yep. and just blowing your mind with all this information, but they still don't know anything. Right. And so it's just, we're still learning all this crazy <laughs> stuff every day. Yeah. 
So um, yeah, I guess introduction, my name is Eric Cobb. My company is called Z Health, Z Health Performance. Um, it is a, we've been around for about 20 years. It's a educational curriculum and it's, it's long and it's intensive. Um, to kind of give you a background first on where I came from and how all this evolved. Um, I was very athletic growing up, um, played a couple different sports at a high level, very much into arts, competed. Um, as a result of a lot of other things that were going on at the time and bad training, I was kind of obsessive about training, as you were describing. So mm -hmm. I would be, you know, uh, the joke I always make, although it's not a joke, my first martial arts teacher when I was five, I started off when I was five years old. I can still remember him giving us, you know, the kids a little lecture on, uh, you know, the very best, what they did is they would practice every technique a thousand times a day. And at five years old, I went home and I, I did that, right? I was, yeah. I learned early on that I had a high capacity for repetition. So I uh, did pretty well, um, but I also acquired a lot of injuries uh, in that process. So when I got through school, um, going to college, I studied biology and then had to decide between medicine and something more alternative. I had friends that were in both sides and I knew I wanted to focus on movement. So I went to chiropractic school instead of med school and graduated and had kind of the same exact experience that you had, which is I learned a ton. I had some great mentors. Um, I was actually very lucky. Some of the doctors I worked with, and I'll talk about them in just a minute. Um, but I also realized that most of the education was so that I could pass the boards. It wasn't necessarily so that I would know exactly what to do with everyone that walked in the door. Right. Um, and you know, that's when they talk about practice. You have to get experience. You have to touch people. You have to move people. You have to work with them. Uh, the real huge benefit of where I went to school, it was, a it was a very academic school at the time. Several of the doctors that I interned under had been to Czechoslovakia. Uh, and studied at the Prague School. So uh, Vladimir Yanda uh, and Dr. Lewitt particularly. So they had brought, and this was in the early 90s. I'm, yeah. I'm uh, starting to recognize I've, I have aged a little bit. So this was <laughs> the early 90s. Uh, and so I was really, I was lucky because I got a lot of neural insights. Um, the other thing that was very advantageous at that time was that our professor who taught our neuroanatomy and neurophysiology courses uh, had done some of his postgraduate work in pain neuroscience with um, students of Melzac, uh, who are very famous in the, in the pain neuroscience world. So even at that early age, I had some exposure to ideas that there's more to what we do than find something sticky and make it less sticky. Right? Yeah. Find something tight, make it less tight. Right. Uh, so I was very in, interested in neurology, um, but I didn't have a lot of practical experience. So when I got out into practice, Probably about my, you know, 18 to 24 months into my first practice, um, I was super frustrated because I had great success with some people. I had no success with other people. Uh, and that was, that was very bothersome to me. Um, in the, you know, one of the stories that I tell, because this was interesting, I had working with a, a mentor at that time to try and help me build the practice. And... Uh, I saw him periodically. It was more about marketing and advertising, but we did talk about patient management to some degree. And I went to a lunch meeting with him and we sat down. He asked me how things were going and I was describing this frustration. And he goes, you need to stop worrying about that. And I went, what do you mean stop worrying about it? He's like, look, it's the 80-10-10 rule. He goes, 80% of people are going to get better no matter what you do. 
10% are going to get worse no matter what you do, and 10 are going to stay the same. He said, so you're basically there to entertain them, make sure that they feel okay, uh, and that's how your practice is going to grow. And I went, no. <laughs> oh, man. I said, that is, that is not the philosophy I have, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that was actually this big turning point for me because I, I recognized that if someone entrusted themselves to our care, it was our responsibility to help solve the problem, if at all possible. And if not, refer them to someone that could. Um, so in the late 90s, I really uh, had the good fortune to really get more involved in the movement side of the world. Um, spending more time on exercise, physical therapy, basic rehab in combination with manual therapy. That improved things, uh, improved results. Still not anywhere close to where I wanted to go. Um, and then from there in the 2000s, after working with a lot of wounded vets coming back, um, particularly blast injuries, concussion, hmm. that drove me much more deeply into what do we know about movement, right? Um, being a chiropractor, you're supposedly a neuromusculoskeletal specialist, but really at that time, at least, I felt more musculoskeletal. Right. Uh, and so this took his now a very long and winding road into trying to redefine movement from the top down rather than the bottom up to go, right. okay, what do we know about how the brain is involved in the control of movement? How is the brain involved in pain, pain management? Uh, and so uh, in 2003, I launched uh, Z-Health as a, as a training system. Uh, and it's just grown really exponentially from there. Uh, what I taught in 2003, 2005 resembles almost not at all what I teach now because we've yeah. learned so much. Um, I'm super thankful there are so many research scientists around the world who are doing the hard, you know, clinical research. I tell people my primary job is a translator. Um, I read a ton uh, and then try to take, you know, stuff from the laboratory and go, how would we apply that in an actual setting? Uh, so whenever I was building a curriculum, I said my primary goal was only to teach classes that I wish I had been taught. Right. So that's really what we have focused on. Um, yeah, for, as I said, since 2003. So we teach all over the world. Um, at this point, we have students from, I don't know, probably 90 plus countries. Uh, we teach a lot in the U.S. We teach a lot in Germany and Scandinavia. Um, and the reception has been amazing, to be honest. I think most people in the movement world have had that splinter in their brain that there's more to this than, uh, you know, maybe what they learned in school. And so I think a lot of our curriculum helps bridge the gap. Uh, one of my mentors years and years ago, like when I was in school, 1991, I remember him. It's this very intense guy. Uh, he was a clinical, one of our clinicians. And he used to always yell at us. He's like, everything we do is applied anatomy. And he was really probably a huge driver for me to say, understand how to help someone. You have to know the anatomy, right? right? We can learn tools and we can learn techniques, but techniques by nature are less adaptable if you don't understand the anatomy that drove the technique in the first place. So I spent a ton of time trying to basically reverse engineer movement, reverse engineer athleticism, reverse engineer pain, uh, and you know, build out of that uh, the system. Right. So that's, there's a lot to unpack there. So one thing is um, frustration. So that's how I got to where I am also just being super frustrated. Why isn't this working? How come that person isn't better? This doesn't make any sense. This worked on this person. How come it doesn't work on this person? And so there's, 
you know, some people that are just like, I don't know. And then there's other people like, no, I got to figure this out. And we live in this age of information, like you said, where you can learn anything you want anytime you want. And so what, one of the reasons, you know, I, um, uh, was trying to get into PT school, but I kept hitting these roadblocks at all these math classes. And so my brain, the way my brain works is if you can't tell me why, then I don't care. And so, you know, when I was learning anatomy and physiology, this is the example that I always use, you know, when they're telling me about the women's menstrual cycle, I'm like, I don't care. How is this going to help me fix their rotator cuff injury? I don't care. But now that I'm further into my education, I'm like, oh, if they're not having a menstrual cycle, that's a huge problem. We should probably address that first, <laughs> right? <laughs> because, and so the one thing that I appreciate um, just watching those two modules today is you guys give, you give the information and then you tell us how to apply it, which is one of those critical things that's just missing from even a lot of today's education courses is they're just like here's this information see you later and you're like oh my god what do i do with that and a lot of people um get really overwhelmed and just stop but like i i tell everybody i was blessed with the fuck it gene i'm just gonna go try it and if it doesn't work then i'm gonna fall back on what i already know right that's a great genome. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I don't know what it's called. If somebody could look that up for me, that'd be great. Uh, but uh, you know, then going back to because you um, were talking about the Prague School. So one of my first education courses that I took out of school was the DNS courses, mm -hmm. and so a lot of that developmental kinesiology that we acquire is based off of frustration. Like I want to get over there. Right. How do I do that? And then we just sit there and figure it out. Right. And then it just evolves into this practice of being a human. You know what I mean? And then once you get to um, the stage that you and I were at where we just get so frustrated that we can't help people. And then we start diving into all this information on how to better help people. And then understanding that we don't understand anything and that, the information that we're receiving right now is important for the people that didn't have it before. And so then going on and teaching that stuff so that we can affect more practitioners and therefore affect more people. Yeah. That's really been our goal. I, um, you know, we all go through these developmental stages as human beings and I've tried to as much as possible stay super, super respectful of all the people I've learned from. Right. Yeah. Um, without um, being so steeped in a tradition that it makes me stop thinking. Yes. That's always been one of, you know, that's one of the bigger challenges. I have utmost respect for so many practitioners uh, that have developed things, but I think the goal of science and the goal of, you know, every athlete, right? Uh, imagine that if it, at some point someone said, hey, Usain Bolt, his records will never be beaten. Well, then all progress stops. Yep. At some point, someone has to believe that there's a way to shave off another hundredth of a second. Right. And that's really kind of what drives the evolutionary process. So um, the way that that works for us is we revise our, our courses about every six months. Um, yeah. We have a, you know, all of our stuff is, we have a whole online, all, all of our certifications online. We also teach live. 
but one of the things that we have uh, as part of our educational process is most people have come through the certification once we tell them come back for free for life. Yeah. It's not going to be the same course for two reasons. Yeah. We're going to change it and you're going to change. <laughs> yep. Right. You go out you apply the information. The next time you hear it, you get a different uh, shade or a different subtlety that you can apply. Um, but I totally agree with you that the, there is a huge disconnect between academic information and application. Right. Um, and that's really what I've spent most of our, our work is trying to bridge that gap. Um, right. the example I usually give is, you know, when you're a, you know, first year med student, first year Cairo, osteo, and whatever, usually your first year is when you do your gross anatomy lab, or you're doing cadaver dissections, and you're looking at tissues. And I have made the point for years, it would be much, much better to do that the year before you graduate, as opposed to your first year. Yeah. Because by then you've accumulated some knowledge, you've accumulated some experience. So when you do it, there's a reason for doing it other than just passing the class. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm deeply committed to don't teach information if there's no application. Right. Yeah. Sometimes you need, you need a, a deeper theoretical background so you can figure out problems on your own. But it is so much easier, I think, for our most human beings as problem solvers to learn information that can be immediately applied and experienced. Right. And yeah. so during this time, um, I started rereading Stuart McGill's book, uh, Low Back Disorders. Mm -hmm. And so when I first started reading it five years ago, when I first started my practice, I was like, holy shit. But I don't, okay. I don't know what any of this means. I was looking <laughs> up every fourth or fifth word, you right. know, but here I am five years into my practice and I've taken myriad of different education and I can read that book effortlessly now, right. whereas before. And so that's kind of where you guys are at and where everybody's at. There's levels to this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I was talking to, cause you guys have a relationship with rock tape now, right? Yeah. So I was talking to, uh, uh, Dr. Capobianco on episode 50. And he was talking about just the evolution of rock tape just within the first five years. And then since I took it back in 2015 to now, mm -hmm. it's gone through multiple different iterations of what just the FMT even means. Cause it right. used to mean a uh, fascial movement taping and now it's right. functional movement techniques. And so right you know, that's one of the things that like immediately going into the first module this morning, you guys were just really heavy into the sensory input. And I just like, that's one thing that I was trying to um, impart on my coaches uh, at a gym that I used to work at. And that's the reason why I don't work there anymore <laughs> is because like you, we need to give the brain clear and articulate information on what we want the body to do. And so you can't, Sometimes you can do that verbally, but that's only with athletes that are experienced. Mm -hmm. But inexperienced athletes, you need to give them some type of tactile input to be like, hey, you need to squeeze your shoulders together. Put your fingers on both shoulder blades, pull them together like this. And they're like, oh, okay, got it. Instead yeah. of just, because for, for the most part, you're just yelling at them and they don't know what to do. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know just like, got to stop yelling, got to start touching people. You know, that's because... Yeah. That's like, and that's what I use rock tape for. Um, and maybe we can expound on this a little bit, but you know, any kind of work that I do on the table, any kind of corrective work that I do on the table, I have to integrate movement into that work in order to keep that threat mm -hmm. away. 
right? And so one of the ways that I use that is with tape and, and movement. Absolutely. So, you know, whenever you explain this to a patient or a client, I, I really recommend people start to get little um, mini educational seminars prepared in their head. Yeah. Um, I tell people, here's, you know, here's a, a classic example. You're talking to a client, I go, listen, I need you to understand how movement works. It's based on your nervous system. Your brain's in charge of everything. And your nervous system works this way. It takes in input from all the sensations and senses. The brain has to integrate that information, make a decision about it. And then that decision creates the movement, creates the motor output. So when someone comes to me and they're complaining, of, it hurts when I bend my arm, that's an output problem. Right. Movement is an output. So we could try to solve that by changing how you're doing output locally. But much more importantly, we want to consider, well, what are all the different inputs that are involved in this? And is the brain healthy enough and capable of making good decisions about these inputs? When you have that kind of expansive thinking, it really opens up your eyes to going, oh, wow, a visual problem can cause the elbow pain. The stimulus problem can cause low back pain. And really, you know, a lot of our curriculum is just going through the anatomy of how those things happen. Right. Um, but this idea of taping, cupping, any kind of sensory stimulus that you can provide is absolutely enormous. Um, you know, if you show brain pictures to people, if you show a, a brain picture from the side, I normally will draw a line uh, in the sulcus here and show them about two thirds of the brain is almost exclusively dedicated to sensory input. Yep. So most of our brain is about taking in information, not creating movement. Right. So if there is dysfunction in the input systems, is a really high propensity for having output problems. And that, right. output, like I said, is usually altered movement, pain, movement strategies are a mess, gait's a problem. Uh, yeah, our partnership with Rock Tape has been amazing. Great, great people, super smart. Uh, we speak very much the same language about brain control and how things work. And they have done an enormously impressive job on creating tools yeah. that you can use immediately to alter sensory input uh, in a ton of different ways. So it's, it's been a great, uh, a great match so far. And, and I've, I've loved everyone I've met from there. Super, super nice people. Right. So uh, one thing that I wanted to unpack with you as well is you guys, um, I think it was in module two, you guys started mentioning muscle testing. And so that's one of the, um, my introduction to muscle testing was at a, uh, DNS course mm -hmm. and I met a chiropractor who's been doing it for 40 years and he, uh, was well-versed in applied kinesiology and he worked on me for an hour and did all kinds of different things through muscle testing, figured out all this different stuff and then adjusted one vertebrae and then I felt a million times better. And I'm like, what are all these other chiropractors doing? Because that's insane. Um, and so then I immediately started diving into that and just started finding spectacular results. So going along like muscle dysfunction, you're testing a muscle. Does this, does your brain know what this muscle is supposed to do? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then what can we do to get it to understand what that muscle is supposed to be doing? Because that's a huge threat response. Mm -hmm. And so um, the way that I talk to my clients about it is your, your brain creates a map of your body based on the movement that you're completing every day. And so if there's movements like uh, shoulder extension, that's one of the ones that I harp on all the time. A lot of people don't spend a lot of time in shoulder extension. It's either pushing straight forward or straight up. Right. And so if your brain doesn't have any idea 
what the back of your shoulder is, then it's a huge threat response and you're going to have pain there, you know? So it's, uh, let's talk about muscle testing a little bit. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll try and do this briefly. <laughs> uh, I'm laughing about it because I, um, a, f a friend of mine, I'm, I'm reviewing one of his books right now, and there's a whole chapter on muscle testing, and, and that led me in our level four course, which is called T-Phase, which is kind of a more therapy-based course. Um, I have a, in our online university, I have about an eight-hour presentation on muscle testing, so I'll try to condense it down and, and try to make it super practical. Yeah, so eight uh, hours into five minutes, yeah. Yeah, eight hours into five minutes <laughs> or less. So one of the big knocks um, in the medical world on muscle testing is using it at a diagnostic level, right? Um, because most of the studies that have looked at what's called inter-examiner reliability, meaning you test them, I test them, someone else tests them, uh, have been very poor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the first things that I try to get across to people is that the, any kind of muscle test is just about in time, right? More importantly, when you're doing muscle testing on a client, you have to make as certain as possible that all of the conditions are exactly the same. Um, because what I, what I normally start off when I dem demonstrate this in a course is I'll take someone's test, whether it's a positive or negative test, I don't care. Uh, but then we start adding in different inputs into the system. So maybe I do a test, I have them do a vision drill and we retest. And then we give some sound into one ear and sound into the other ear. And we have them hold their tongue in a different position. We test them on an inhale versus an exhale. We look for changes with very small head rotations. And what you see is that in a lot of cases, the muscle test response will change as you're changing any kind of stimulus. So even as the practitioner, if your hands are getting cold during the session because you're nervous, where you're touching them, you're now giving them a different sensory input than maybe how it was in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And all those things can make it challenging um, to use muscle testing, like I said, in any kind of pure diagnostic sense, unless you're doing something more on a, like an ortho, just straight up ortho testing. Uh, now, with that said, I think muscle testing is one of the best communication tools we have for clients. Mm -hmm. and that's generally how I show this to, or how I teach this in our courses. Um, in, you know, most of our clients want to move better. They want to be stronger. They want to feel they're improving. Muscle testing is one of the fastest ways to show them that the stimulus that you provided is having a positive impact on motor performance. Um, so that's really kind of how I tend to focus on it. Um, there are, incredibly complicated systems out there uh, in the chiropractic world, applied kinesiology, clinical kinesiology. Uh, we have MAT, NKT, uh, obviously DNS. I think everyone does some version of it, mm -hmm. uh, or a lot of systems do some version of muscle testing. Uh, and again, I think it's an amazing communication tool. It just needs to be applied really, really carefully. And yeah. for me, the most important thing is that practitioners don't get confused by what they're finding. Right. Um, I, when I got out of school, I did a thousand hours of AK uh, in clinical kinesiology, both. And while I loved it, I also wound up very frustrated again because I felt like I was chasing my own tail a lot yeah. where one thing would improve, but something else wouldn't. Um, and so when I dug more into the research around, uh, like I said, the, the reliability and then now adding all the neurologic layers, I started to realize that a lot of times I was doing testing exactly as I should have been. Unfortunately, the client was looking off to the left versus looking straight ahead, or they were inhaling versus exhaling. 
Right. So whenever I became much more consistent with positioning, I became much more consistent with breath cycles. I became much more consistent with how we're going to apply pressure. Um, it became a much more reliable or consistent finding. So, yeah. And you got to really pay attention to, because we're masters of compensation, right? Yeah. So people want to win. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, especially when you're muscle testing athletes, mm-hmm. like they're just like, no, I'm, gonna beat you and you're like okay and so <laughs> everything in their know, like yeah grabbing their grabbing the table any right. kind of different stuff and sometimes it's super subtle so then you know you go on against the law of irradiation so then if they're clenching one fist then that's going to recruit more muscle fibers to make it yeah so it's uh it's a just trying to figure people out, man, that's a constant effort and you guys are doing a great job. And man, just like I said, the two modules I watched today, I'm probably going to watch them again, to be honest. And uh, (laughs) um, so man, how many modules do you guys have then? So like if you guys, so you have multiple iterations of these different courses, right? So, um, so, so what you're watching today, I, it's the neurofundamentals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what we did because of the Corona thing, we have obviously, um, we have a lot of people interested in what we do, but they haven't had the time and didn't want to invest money. And like, I get it. You, the neurology, honestly, in the movement world is still very weird. Yeah. Still so far away from what most people are used to. Um, when we first started the curriculum, we just launched directly into our certifications. Our certifications mm-hmm. were four days. Um, they're very intensive, you know, uh, and because it was advanced, I assumed a lot of people were coming in with basic levels of information and knowledge. So we've had to really shape that over the, the history of the company to make sure that the material is super accessible. Yeah. Uh, in 2000, I don't remember, it was maybe eight or nine. Um, someone said, Hey, you should create an introductory course, right? Just a three day sampler, let people get an idea of what you do. So we have what's called the essentials of elite performance. Um, a lot of the information here from neurofundamentals is actually taken from that course. And that's the super cheap three-day entry point to go, is this for me or not? Because I'm, I'm super honest with people. I go, look, neurology is not hard, but it is not easy. Meaning you're not going to come into any of our courses and we're going to go, here are the six exercises, do them in this order, everyone's going to be fine. Z-Health is a a thinking system. So it is about principles. It's about appropriate practices. Um, And we know some people really dig it. And other people go, I don't want to work that hard. Yeah. Uh, But the three-day course gives them an opportunity to experience that. Um, Once they go through that, we have in our official certification curriculum, we have 11 courses. Um, So it takes people, it's about uh, 450 hours uh, of, of like classroom time. Yeah, you actually do the preparation that we ask you to do. Read the books. Uh, most people to get through our full curriculum will spend, I would say, about a thousand hours. Uh, yeah. And then after that, we have a master practitioner program, which just involves testing and more stuff. Uh, so most people, if they go all the way through the curriculum, they go through our MP program. You're looking at fifteen hundred to two thousand hours of time investment, which most people would spend to get a master's or PhD, depending on on what they're interested in. Uh, it's a broad ranging curriculum, and this is what makes it a little bit different in that we don't just focus on one topic, meaning yeah. we're not just a therapy pain relief company. Um, we're very much also into movement, fitness, and we're into sports. 
So some of our advanced curriculum, um, you know, we have courses that are specifically about strength and flexibility development. We have a course specifically on stamina. It's four days of looking at endurance development through resp respiration training and pain, pain management. Uh, so we have, uh, yeah, people kind of from all walks of the professional uh, community. So we have a lot of elite sport coaches. We have doctors, we have physical therapists, we have uh, massage therapists, OTs, uh, and then we have a lot of um, kind of advanced personal trainers. Um, we have some dance instructors, yoga, like it's so it's a, it's a big blend. But the thing that's really cool about, I think, more what I love about our community, I'll just say this, is that we've never differentiated the professions. Yeah. So if you come to a course, you're in there with PTs, D DCs, DOs, MDs, coaches, uh, because one of the, my frustrations, honestly, um, over the years was that it didn't seem like any profession knew what anyone else knew or what they did. Right. So there was a real lack of what I would consider integrated referral processes yep. because no one trusted anyone else. Um, so we have intentionally from the very beginning, not separated this out into this is the medical track. This is the, the coaching track. Um, I, and I feel really happy about that because it's really bred some amazing, um, interactions, I think, and some growth on, on all sides. Uh, yeah. in Europe, we actually have one right now. It's very fun because we actually have one full clinic and it's, uh, three orthopedic surgeons. Their physical therapists um, are all going through the curriculum all together at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and that's been, again, it's really interesting to talk to them about how they're integrating that into the scope of what they're doing. Yeah. So that's really interesting because just being a massage therapist, people of different professions like PTs or uh, DC specifically, as soon as they learn that I'm a massage therapist, they just kind of, well, you don't right. know what you're talking about. I'm like, I'm, dare you think that I can't read a book on stuff? <laughs> you know what I mean? Come on. I can read all the same research papers you can. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, that's really cool. Um, where can people find um, all your courses? And you guys have a big Instagram presence. And Yeah. So our main website is zhealtheducation.com. Um, it's Z-H-E-A-L-T-H -E -E education. So all one word. Um, if you go to that site, you can, you can take a look at all the courses. We have kind of a roadmap for, you know, because therapists may want to go one direction, et cetera. So you can look at the course roadmaps on there. Um, on Instagram, it's just zhealth underscore performance. Um, we've, we really got into Instagram about a year and a half ago and it's been nice. It's been, it's grown a lot. Um, yeah. I'm not personally a huge social media fan, but I do most of the posts there. Yeah. So that's been a growth process for me, yeah. <laughs> working on graphics and trying to figure out what people enjoy reading. Right. Um, once people register for courses with us, we have an, a, um, an attached sister site and it's called, it's our university. Okay. Uh, so all of our courses, we have full, um, we have the full curriculum online at this point. So every course we've ever done, uh, we have new versions of them in the university. Uh, and then what we do in addition to the, the videos of the live training, we also put in resources. So most of the particularly for, first four courses have maybe 50 or a hundred additional videos going through each individual exercise, uh, the PowerPoints, the manuals, um, and then also our research archives. So we put all that into the health view. We're really trying to make it a, a place where if people really want to dive into this, they can study on their own. 
this course that you're you're talking about you've been watching this morning we just released it today i think yeah. or yesterday um, and if you go to Instagram, you can actually find the link there. It's just our neurofundamentals course. Okay. Uh, so if anyone is interested, if they can't find it, you can always just email us at the office and we can send you the link. Right on. And, uh, do you have to take, uh, any of the courses in order or can you just take them in any order you want? So we go back and forth on this. Um, our basic policy for many years has been, we prefer for people to take at least our first two before they start venturing off. Okay. Uh, our first course is called R phase. Second for, second course is called I phase. Okay. Um, so R phase goes a lot into the proprioceptive system. Uh, our general concepts around how neurology functions. I phase, we start really digging into the visual system and the vestibular system and more integrated movement practices. Those two courses really form the foundation so that when people go into the advanced stuff, we don't have to re-explain uh, some of the core materials. So that's what we recommend. Now, uh, with stuff online, we're pretty open because we have some people like you that come in or a lot of the rock tape docs um, who have extensive backgrounds. And I go, look, look at what you enjoy, right? I'm an yeah. educator. And I know that if you're enjoying it, you're interested in it, you're much more likely to watch it and do something yeah. with it. So um, the main thing is we just don't want people to be confused. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. It, <laughs> it, it can get out of hand real quick. <laughs> Because I remember uh, the first time I took a neurokinetic therapy level one, mm -hmm. just people walked in and just like the first half hour, we're just like, what is happening? <laughs> and you're just like, oh my God. And I'd been studying it um, kind of on my own for a year. So I had a good idea of what I was getting myself into, but even I was overwhelmed. And then, so I was looking at all these other people being like, she is going to lose her mind. You know, it's, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. So cool. you know, prior specialties matter. They're helpful, but they're, you know, by nature of being humans, we get good at what's in front of us. Right. Um, and at this point, I think maybe six or eight students come through who have advanced degrees or PhDs in neuroscience. Yeah. And they get into the material and they go, I've never seen anything like this because right. their specialty was on one molecule. Right? Yeah. They got their, their PhD in. Uh, and here we are going, here's a lot of other stuff about how to apply neuroscience uh, yeah. in a practical movement setting. So, um, you know, learning for me is a passion. And so we just always want, as I said, I teach courses. I wish I'd been taught. It's all about learning to think through the problem, know the anatomy, understand how things interact. How do I do appropriate assessments? How do I dose those? How do I turn those into drills? Uh, and so each course kind of builds on other things that you hear in the curriculum. Yeah. And it's uh, really important to have that critical thinking mindset because a majority of my clients that come in, they're not the same every time. They're coming in with different stuff every time. So right. you have to start asking questions and start solving problems and figure out what's going on this time, what's going on that time. And we use a lot of metaphors when we speak to people. And, and so you, you just got to listen. And so that's where I feel um, there's like this new kind of route that a lot of PTs and, and massage therapists and uh, DCs are taking where they're just going kind of a cash-based model so that they can spend more time with people. And just the act of spending more time with people gets better results because you're actually paying attention to the person. Without question. Yeah. Yep. There's, a, 
this is one of my soapbox topics that I, I actually, I can rant about this a lot. Yeah. Um, if you actually understand pain neuroscience at a, at a pretty deep level, the interaction with a professional sets the foundation for whether people get out of pain or not. Right. At, at a very, very deep level, because again, threat induces a protective response. That protective response is pain in most cases. That's why people see a lot of us. Yeah. So if the interaction with the provider, regardless of their degree, increases threat levels because it's confusing, it doesn't make sense, they don't understand the language, there's no metaphors being applied, and it's also based in a lack of hope, you're going to see very, very poor results. Um, I think, you know, I have a lot of friends that are medical practitioners, and I tell people I love them, and I fully believe in what they do. But what people have to understand is that medicine, the general practice of medicine around the world is what I call a death prevention practice. It's not life enhancement. Right. Their job is to keep you alive and then send you off to other people. Right. So if you're, you know, if you're in a car accident, the United States is one of the very best places in the world to be. If you need something sung back on, <laughs> you, not, you need to not die from a, a gunshot wound. This is an amazing place. Right. But the, so the medical legal environment is incredibly difficult for them to practice in. Uh, the economic environment is difficult for them to practice in. So right. the, average, you know, the average interaction with a medical practitioner in the U.S. is about seven minutes. Yeah. There's not a lot, you know, and the, the joke I always make is, how many times do you see a doctor in a year? They go, yeah, two or three times. Okay, so that's 21 minutes. Uh, Imagine you had 21 minutes to tell your kid everything that they need to know for the rest of the year to stay right. healthy, to know how to exercise, you know, know how to eat like that. And, the, and then assume that they're going to remember it and, and enact it is actually ludicrous. We know that that's not how it works. So I've been super in, I've been super excited to see a lot of people moving more toward cash-based practices, taking the time, do the, the deep history, learn about the people, explain things to them, educate them, because I think long-term, those are the results that are going to make most of us as practitioners much happier with what we're seeing. Right. So just thinking on that statistic is bananas because I spend a majority of that 21 minutes of my first hour long session with people doing exactly what I was doing to you for most of this conversation was just sitting there nodding. <laughs> <laughs> and listening and that's so just within the first half of my appointment i'm listening to people longer than their medical docs have the opportunity to and that's just yeah. really unfortunate it is unfortunate i you know i um years ago whenever i started bringing a lot of pain neuroscience into our curriculum i had some medical professionals and i'm not just saying in these people you know with with higher level degrees um, speak to me about it. And they were kind of upset. They're like, why are you teaching personal trainers about pain? Or why are you teaching uh, sports coaches about pain? And I, I gave them this very simple explanation. I said, the average trainer is going to see this person 100 to 120 hours a year. You're going to see them for 15 minutes. Yep. Who's in a better position to educate them, help them, refer them appropriately, or notice that something is wrong? Right. You know, I was like, if we deal with other human beings on a physical level, whoever does that ethically, I think needs to be educated about how pain works. When is what we're doing not working? So I can send you to make sure that you don't have a, you know, a tumor. And I just think that's so critical for people to understand 
there is no replacement for time. Right. And that's as much as I would love to say technology can fix it. And it it can't. Right. We at this point, technology that replaces your capacity to observe someone week over week and go, things are improving or things aren't improving and have the opportunity to think about why and, and do some tests. Right. And so that's one important word that you said there is referral because, uh, the more knowledge that I get, the more I understand if it's above my pay grade or not. And so, you know, I took uh, the clinical neurodynamics with Michael Shacklock last year, and I've referred way more people this year than I did last year, just based off of, oh, I know exactly what this is, and I do not have the appropriate tools to handle this, so I'm going to refer you out to somebody. And so that's, I think, is really important too, because... um, you know, the me from four years ago was incredibly naive and would have just been like, nah, I could fix this. You know, it's, it's so important and having a network of people that you trust that trust you. Yeah. That is, again, that's our job. It's critical to know when, it, like you said, it's beyond your pain grade. Right. And I think probably the, the biggest encouragement I always give, I know a lot of young practitioners particularly, you know, we were talking about finances here at the beginning of this. When you're afraid that referral means that you're going to lose that income, yeah, people are super afraid to refer. And right. that's not even a conscious thought very often. That's a subconscious, like, ah, I have to protect me. Right. Um, and so I always try to remind them, I'm going, I, and literally in my own life, I say some of the best referring patients I ever had were ones that I could do nothing for other than make an appropriate referral. Right. And they remember that. So so even though they're not your client anymore, they may come back later, but they're also going to refer you five or six people just based on the fact that you had their best interest at heart instead of your best interest. And so people can understand that. And so, you know, early on in my career, that was one thing that I realized really quickly is if I'm panicking because I'm not getting enough clients and I start reaching out and, sending people messages based off of monetary needs, Mm -hmm. then a lot of them don't respond or they're too busy. But if I genuinely reach out because I genuinely care and I haven't seen them in a long period of time, then they'll make an appointment pretty much every time. And so, you know, just the intention that you're putting out into the universe, which is another thing that we have no, no idea about is, (laughs) is, uh, is really important. And so that goes back to what you were talking about with muscle testing where, Oh, your low back's hurting. So this QL test is going to fail no matter what you're probably convincing them that it's going to fail subconsciously, which is another thing we don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Man, thank you so much for coming on. This was a fantastic conversation. My pleasure. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, Is there anything else I can answer for you before we wrap up? Man, I think, I don't think my brain can handle much more. So like I said, (laughs) (laughs) this has been like three and a half hours of Z health. I'm (laughs) pretty much going to call it a day, I think. But thank you again. I appreciate it. That's been my pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, my friend. It was good to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Take care.